I imagine that we, most of us, if not all of us, have significant days in our memory, perhaps days where things are really vivid for us. They may have been many years ago, and we can remember aspects of them with great distinctness. It may be a celebration, it may be an achievement of some kind, it may have been a, a wedding, the birth of a child, the death of a loved one. But there, there are days that we can remember far better than we can remember what we did last week or last month. There are, there are days that maybe are years ago, and we can remember them with great accuracy. A day like that for me is the 6th of May, 1991, a bank holiday just over 30 years ago when I was 22 years old. I was out with my dad for the day, and suddenly he, he just died. Uh, very, very quickly, he, he died. And I can remember vividly so many aspects of that day. I can remember going to tell my mom and then my sister and then phoning my brother, who was in England, and telling them all what had happened. And I imagine for John, the gospel writer, the day of the crucifixion, was just such a day. He was, as far as we know, apart from the Roman soldiers, he was the man, he was the one man who was among the women at the foot of the cross. We may well wonder, well, why was there only one man? And it's not just because the other disciples had all run into hiding, but the fact is that somehow John was able to move with the woman and his life was not a threat. It's like, um, in, if you ever watched footage of unrest in the Middle East, uh, in Lebanon years ago or in Syria, one thing that is really startling sometimes is to see guerrilla warfare happening in a city and people, uh, men, shooting at each other and uh, hiding, running from building to building. And in the midst of the chaos, women walking along with their shopping in the middle of the day. The same thing has been happening in Syria as well. Men running, fighting, men desperately making sure they don't put their head above the parapet because there could be a sniper and their life could be taken from them. And yet as they do that, a few feet away, a woman walks with her child. She's just been to try and find some shopping. How can that happen? It happens because the same is true today as it was then, that so often in a place of conflict and persecution, women are allowed to move freely. Men don't show their faces. The reason why John alone as a man is at the foot of the cross is because he's so young, he's only considered a boy, that he's not considered a threat. If you were closely associated with someone who was basically being crucified for treason against the Roman Empire, you didn't turn up to watch the crucifixion. Because if you did, the Roman soldiers would hoist up another crucifix and you would end up on it. That's why there are no other disciples at the foot of the cross. But John, who's considered to be just a boy by the Roman soldiers. And I imagine John remembers all this vividly and also because Jesus turns to his mother and says, dear woman, here is your son, and to John, here, here is your mother. And I imagine it wasn't just the words of Jesus that 
that made this a significant moment of a bond forming between John and Mary, but also the fact that they both had been party to witnessing this traumatic event. It would be traumatic for anybody to witness a crucifixion. The sights, the sounds, and the smells would stay with you, I imagine, for the rest of your life. To watch three men suffocate to death over a period of hours would be traumatic. But particularly if one of them is your son, or particularly if you're perhaps a boy in your late teens, you've just entered manhood, and you perhaps wonder, why is it, how is it that I've come to be here to witness this pitiful, tragic, awful end of this dear man, Jesus? Sometimes we, we just don't know that something is going to be etched in our memory for the rest of our days. Sometimes we just find ourselves in a place and we see something we don't intend to see and it stays with us for the rest of our lives. Sometimes we, we choose to be in a place knowing the fact that we're going to see something that is going to haunt us for the rest of our days. And John may well have wondered why God... Why did I end up in that place, the one man among the women? Why did I end up there? I think the answer is because it was important that there was at least one man there as a legal witness to testify to the fact that Jesus Christ was dead. It was really important there was someone there to be able to say, I was there, and believe me, Jesus died. Let, let, let's not uh, consider the fact that he just somehow uh, lost consciousness. And so John is able to testify, and he reinforces in his writing the fact that he is there whenever the other two criminals, the criminals that were crucified around Jesus, and their legs were broken so that they wouldn't be able to keep hoisting themselves up and trying to catch another breath. Crucifying kills you through exhaustion. You asphyxiate over a period of hours. You keep pushing yourself up to open up your lungs so that you can breathe. And as your legs get weaker and weaker and your arms get weaker and weaker, gradually you can no longer push yourself up and you suffocate. And so the reason why legs are broken is that it brings death around quickly because you can no longer keep pushing yourself up. But when they came to Jesus, there was no need to break his legs. He was already dead. But a Roman soldier had to make sure the victims were all dead. If someone survived crucifixion, the soldier themselves would actually be executed. So you can imagine the vigor with which the Roman soldier thrust the spear into Jesus' body. He had to make sure he was dead. And when he did, blood and water flowed out. All through John's gospel, there are a series of days and there are a series of signs. And John wants us to understand in each case that there is a, a perfection and order in it. And so there are the seven days and there are the seven signs.
John gives us clues as to what some of those signs are that he mentions, and he only chooses some of the miracles and signs of Jesus. The wedding at Canaan of Galilee, he identifies as the first one in which he just turned water into wine to save the blushes of our married couple. Then in John chapter 4, we, we see other miracles. Uh, and through those chapters, we see miracles unfold in the middle of John's gospel. Finally, it comes to the, the sixth day, the Friday. And we've already seen six signs. And then comes the seventh sign. John doesn't say, this is the seventh sign. He lets us work it out for ourselves. And the seventh sign is the crucifixion of Jesus. It's the spear being thrust up into his body. And in that place, not just the fact that Jesus is dead, the medical proof of, of blood and water separated in the body of clot and serum, a modern understanding of human death. John recognizes the fact that there's something much deeper something more profound going on, that in the place of Jesus being confirmed dead, the cleansing blood of Jesus and the life-giving water of his Holy Spirit flow out in that moment. I imagine in that moment John didn't recognize it. It's only over the months and years ahead. By the time John comes to write his gospel, he has come to understand, why was I there? Why was I a witness he wants us to understand that in the barbarism of what he sees before him, in his Lord being crucified, in him being confirmed dead, in the barbaric moment of the spear being thrust into the side, that John recognizes in the providence of God that here flows the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice by which we are brought back into communion with God, the filth and the dirt of our past are washed clean. And in that place, not only is there cleansing, but also is there life. And so Jesus, amazingly given all what we've heard about him being the living water by which this insatiable reservoir of heaven comes to earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus has, has talked about this at uh, in John chapter 4, the woman at the, at the well, he talks to her about having this water to drink by which she'll have her thirst quenched. And on chapter 7, the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up in a loud voice and said, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, John says, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. But this, the crucifixion, is the moment of glorification. It's the lowest point in human history, and yet it's the highest point in human history. And John is a witness to it. He recognizes in the filth and the blood and the smells and the... the three men dying in front of him, gasping for breath, somehow he recognizes by the power of God in him, the power of God that he's experienced in him on the day of Pentecost, he realizes this is the moment 
where in death life springs forth. And so Jesus, the one through whom this life, the gift of the Holy Spirit to all who are willing to believe and receive, amazingly in the moment before he dies, he says, I am thirsty. The one who is the source of all the living water is parched. He is dry. And the fulfillment of Scripture that John is talking about, Psalm 69, I'm worn out for calling for help. My throat is parched. You know how I'm scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart. You've left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They've put gall in my food and given me vinegar for my thirst. And of course, Psalm 22, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and you lay me in the dust of death. And yet the psalm finishes, all the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive, posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Hallelujah, he has done it. He has done everything necessary. It is accomplished. Tetelestai, it is over. It is paid. Recreation has happened. That's what John's gospel is all about. That's why at the start he echoes the book of Genesis. What he's saying is that in the reality of the life and death of Jesus Christ, recreation has happened. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John starts his gospel. Then he has the seventh day. On the sixth day, Jesus stands before Pilate. Pilate says, here is the human being. And then Jesus is crucified, the point of the worst and yet also the point of the best. And in that place, John wants us to understand it is in the crucifixion that man, that humankind is remade, that creation itself is remade. And on the seventh day, Christ rests in the tomb because God rested on the Sabbath after creation. And then, as we'll hear next week, there happens the eighth day, very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, John begins chapter 20. And what is he saying? He's saying, since time begun, since time of the fall, there's been a pattern of human brokenness, day one to the Sabbath, day one to the Sabbath. And then it comes, the eighth day, the new creation, a new beginning for all those who are willing to look at the one who is slain, the one who laid down his life for us, the one who had his blood poured out, the water of the Holy Spirit flow from him. For anyone who chooses to reach out and say, that is my God, there is a new day. There is a new dawn. There is a recreation there is the very start of the first day of the week. Christ came to give his life for you. He came to give his life for me that we may have a brand new start.
that there could be a new dawn in our lives, not just a personal one, but one that is, is there for all of us. It's actually a recreation. We even mark time before Christ and Adomini after Christ. This is the moment in the middle of history when God came and walked among us. The question I have for you and for me is this, are you thirsty? Jesus came to the point of being absolutely parched and thirsty, covered in the shame and the guilt and the darkness and the death that was due for us so that we could breathe in life, so that we could have a fresh start. And that start begins by trusting, believing, staking our lives on the belief and the trust that God has stepped into His creation in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, and done what only He can do, bring about a great reconciliation between heaven and earth. And in that, in that cleansing, we then receive the life of Jesus Christ Himself coming to live inside us. And the Bible tells us all sorts of things the Holy Spirit does in our lives, and all of them are good. He gives us new birth and new life. Nicodemus is the one who, with Joseph of Arimathea, is the one who buries the body of Jesus. We've seen Nicodemus twice so far in the gospel. John chapter 3, John chapter, it's about 7 or 9, where he stands up for Jesus in the Sanhedrin. All the way through, Nicodemus has been working in darkness, and Jesus said to him, are you willing to step into the light and discover new life? And finally, before the sun goes down, he comes with 35 pounds of, of uh, burial spices. Whenever the woman anointed Jesus, people were, were horrified as to how much there was potential waste as she poured out this nard. What Nicodemus does is probably a hundred times that. The bottle that was used to anoint Jesus was worth a year's wages. Nicodemus brings a hundred years' wages to anoint the body of Jesus. And he does it in daylight. When it seems that there is nothing to gain and everything to lose. And what John wants us to understand is Nicodemus has stepped into the light finally, and this is the moment for rebirth for Nicodemus. He's the first one, John is telling us, is stepping from the darkness into the light that John records following the crucifixion of Christ. The Holy Spirit also helps us to overcome temptation. He guides us how to pray. He opens our hearts in worship. He helps us to understand the truth, the Word of God. He gives us fresh life and strength when we feel that all of our strength has gone. He's the one who helps us to rise up on wings like eagles, to run and not grow weary, to walk and not be faint. And we all need that. Particularly this last year has led to a great weariness among us. And part of what we're doing here is going out to a weary world and saying there is hope and there is a road to recovery. And Jesus Christ is the one who is the way.
But in our lives, the only way that people will encounter God is that if we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit within us. And I think that involves every day of our lives, getting up in the morning and asking God's Holy Spirit to freshly infuse us, to spend time in silence and quietness at the start of the day and say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm an ambassador for you, but I can't do this. I don't have the love in my heart to do what you want me to do. I don't have the boldness and the courage and the compassion and the power to do it. Lord, you're going to have to fill me up afresh with the power of your Holy Spirit. And to keep praying that moment by moment and every moment of the day and every encounter to ask for the Holy Spirit to strengthen us and to enliven us and to fill us up. The question is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for that? Or are we relying on our own strength? We can just about make it so we'll just go our own way and do our own thing because we reckon we haven't reached that point of desperation. Jesus is looking for people who are really, really thirsty. Who are really thirsty for the presence of God. Not just so that we can live lives of joy and empowerment and peace and presence, but also we can be people who step out into the community and in the place of need and sickness and brokenness and desolation and hunger and thirst, we can step into the gap and we can say in the midst of that, God, I don't know what you want to do in this situation and I myself feel I have nothing to offer, but I know the treasure troves of heaven are all there. There's a reservoir of the Holy Spirit there and that you can do it. The Bible tells us that the eyes of the Lord are ranging throughout the whole earth looking for people who are just like that. People who are thirsty for the presence of God. All that is available to you if you trust in Jesus Christ. We just need to keep calling it down. Perhaps what you need to hear today Perhaps as you're here today, you, you feel a sense of hopelessness, either because of your past or because as you look into the future, you wonder, how is this all going to work out? What I believe the word for you today, the Lord has for you, is resurrection. That even if your situation feels like death, Christ's word to you today is resurrection. 